You are listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Today is Sunday, July 10th. We're taking a little break from Romans for Without Walls, our collaborative sermon series with other Real Life churches around the region. Aaron Couch is here to start it off today, talking about God's unrelenting desire to redeem every story. Good morning, Real Life. How's it going? Glad you're here with us today, and we want to take a minute to welcome Pullman in. We're going to give a little simulcast this morning, so let's give a shout out for Pullman. Glad you're here with us this morning. Kiss my wife for me. Actually, don't do that. Anyways, uh, she's over there doing lead worship this morning. Um, We are taking a break from our Roman series, and I'm actually... Really excited about it because Romans, I love Romans. It's just long and I have attention deficit issues. And so we need a little change up, a little switch up. And, and so I'm excited about that. For the next four weeks, we're doing this series called Without Walls. And we're actually doing it um, different than we've been doing uh, the normal. So the, we're working with three of the other real life ministries that are two that are in Spokane, one that's in Post Falls. And we're doing a swap. So the, the worship teams and the preachers are going to swap which will be cool. And so you'll get to hear some good preaching for a change. And that'll be awesome uh, for you. And, and I get to go up and see some of these people. These are churches that we've helped plant and my good friends and a lot of, lot of memories with a lot of those people. So we're going to uh, get to do that through the month of July. Don't worry. We'll be getting right back into where we uh, left off in Romans. We'll talk about God's sovereignty and all that stuff. We're going to talk about it, uh, but it's going to be in August. So um, that's that. We um, are going to talk about today probably the, the if I, the, this, I get paid to speak for a living. Let me start over. This is probably as close to a life message as I have. You know what a life message is? Like the thing, it's the message that every time that you talk to somebody about something, like this is the message that God just oozes out of you. Like you can't get away from, for me, uh, I, this is as, as close as I can get. And, and what I want to share with you this morning is something that's just so in my guts. Um, we're going to look at some, some ways to understand the Bible that kind of a, at one level of interpretation, something that's interesting that goes on in the Bible. And then um, we're going to look at maybe some implications of that. I want to talk to you this morning about um, this idea of the word redeem. And that's where we're going to begin. I believe that God wants to redeem every story. And I believe the Bible proves it. Um, And so we're going to talk about this. The word for redeem in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word ga'al. Say ga'al. Ga'al is uh, this idea of... um, it's important because the, the, the theological definition of redeem over the years has been to buy back, and that really doesn't capture what's going on with redemption. Um, it's a piece of it. No, don't get me wrong. It's a piece of it, but it's not the, what's really going on. The word ga'al is, this is the word that in the New Testament they try to translate salvation, um, and, so, and that's a whole other conversation, but it, salvation just doesn't capture all of it. Uh, ga'al is like, um, think about when you redeem a coupon, okay? So you go to the store with this piece of paper, just a piece of paper. How much value does the piece of paper have? None, it's a piece of paper. So I take this piece of paper to the store and I give it value. Why do I give it value? 
because me and the clerk agree that it has some kind of value. Does that make sense? This is the idea of redemption. It's that we give value to something that has no intrinsic value in and of itself. That's what this drives at. And this has all kinds of implications for us. We're going to begin with a passage that is central to the Jewish understanding of who they are as a people. This is central to their identity. Okay, here, here we go. Exodus chapter 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, uh, underline that, uh, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, what I want to do is go back to that slide where it says I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. Let me talk to you about this. I'll give you a lesson in Egyptian hieroglyphics because I'm a bit of an Egyptologist. <laughs> no. Uh, I know like this much about Egyptian hieroglyphics. What I know is... Any time that any of the gods or the pharaohs is depicted, they're always depicted with their right arm in the air. This is the symbol of power. And in that right arm is a scepter. And in the left hand are scrolls that they hold like this. This ought to give you some sort of imagery. I love Lady Liberty. However... When we put that in the ocean, we made a particular statement to the world about where we believe our security lies. And I would suggest that maybe it wasn't a biblical one. That, that's another conversation. But uh, we got to be careful with that because this is this, the power of my outstretched arm. So when God comes to them and he says, I am going to give you value because of the power of my outstretched arm, what he's saying is I'm God and I'm going to give you value because I say you have value. And by the way, God's right. 100% of the time. Anytime that God and myself disagree, I'm wrong. The question is, how much of a wrestling match am I going to have to go through to get there? Right? And God loves me so much. He's like, you know, like he did with the children of Israel, wandering around in the desert. Oh, you're not ready to accept my promise? Okay, take another lap around the mountain. Oh, you're not ready yet? Okay, take another lap. Not re oh, yeah, that's all right. You're not such right. If you're not ready, take another lap. Tired of lapping the mountain yet? Take another lap. Any, anytime you want to believe me, just trust me. I got amazing things for you. If you believe, take another lap. You know, it's just, it's one of those things God does. I want to show you some examples of how this works, even in the written text, okay? And I'm going to give you three different ways that we can see this. There are thousands of these in the Bible, and these are the kind of things that kind of like trip my switch. So like, this is where I geek out on, on the Bible. I get geeky. Um, so let, let's start in Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Which for those of you that have a brother or sister that's a problem, you're like, yeah, that's a lot. Seven times. If they don't learn their lesson by then, come on, give me a break. By the way, Mosaic Law said you had to give him, forgive him three times. So he's like, I'll be real generous, seven Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And now we as Westerners have an interpretive decision to make because the Greek says 70 times seven times. And it can be translated 70 times seven times, which is 490 times, or it could also be translated 77 times. 
And if you look at the different translations throughout the, the years, different versions, different translations, people have landed all over the map on this. What we wrestle with is this. What's the number? I need to know the number. Just tell me how many times I got to put up with them because at 491, they are Gandhi. <laughs> right? You have family members like this, some of you. Some of us. <laughs> That is not what Jesus is saying. Now let's read on in a parable. It says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants and he began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, which is a whole other interpretive decision that I don't like, but that's another conversation, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. 10,000 bags of gold. Ah, uh, you don't even have to pay it. That's pretty cool. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, which by the way is a lot less. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Which how in the world are you going to repay a debt when you're in prison? Which is kind of the point. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back the debt he owed. Not just thrown in jail, but tortured. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, can we all agree? that when this whole tenure of this thing is about forgiveness, right? Now, this is one that we've talked about before, so some of you will be familiar with where I'm going. But when Jesus says 70 times, seven times, he is not trying to get us to be willing to forgive somebody 77 times or 490 times. He's throwing them back into the text. And what he's doing here is redeeming a story, Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> Sorry, this is PG-13. I should have warned you. Cain knew his wife. She, he yadad his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was, build, was building the city, which raises a question. Why is Cain building a city? Because God's punishment to him for killing Abel was that he would be an aimless wanderer. You're going to be wanderer for the rest of your life. Why, you, why is he building a city? That's a whole other conversation. Um, and he named it after his son Enoch, which is like very sweet of him to do. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who played basketball. Uh, was Kareem Abdul-Jabal. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny right there. Father of those who live in tents and raise livestock, and his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes, which I, okay. Oh, you're a musician. Jubal is your father. Uh, 
Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, and who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was named, was Naamah. Now, that's all we know of them. I don't know why they have to be there, but that's another conversation. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 70 times seven times. Jesus is throwing his guys right back into this story. The root of this story, the reason why Cain's line is so jacked up is because Adam refused to forgive Eve. You need to know that. And if you're like, nah, -uh, how'd that start? Uh, it's another sermon for another day, um, but you can get on my blog uh, in the class reading tab. That I, have, I have some few words about this. Jesus redeems the story by saying this, the antidote to revenge is forgiveness. It's not really about how many times we forgive. It's about the attitude with which we view people. Are you with me? He takes it to a different place. So that's one example of God redeeming the story. Now here's another one, and this one's fun. Remember, uh, Children of Israel come out of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, and they're camped around the base. Moses goes up on the mountain, and he gets the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are um, they're written by God on the stone tablets. And so he comes down, and it says, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, remember they made the golden calf out of their jewelry? He saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Which is like, I don't know. Why? Uh, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them in such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. I love his posture. Well, it's not me. Uh, they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> I don't know, it was the weirdest thing. I said, give me your jewelry. And we just tossed it all in the fire because that's a connection. But then out jumped this calf. It was Hathor, Yay. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. This is just like real life on the Palouse. <laughs> I wanted to change my name after I read this story, by the way. And so became a laughing stock, underline that, to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Now question, did the Holy Spirit forget the number? It's about 3,000-ish. Or maybe there's something else going on. Just a thought. Uh, then Moses said, you've been set apart for the Lord today. If you were against your own sons and brothers, he has blessed you this day. And then the next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps make atonement for your sin, which brings a whole other conversation about atonement, but that's another sermon. Uh, 
So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. Underline this, they've made themselves gods of gold. Now, the question is, is it that they made a god out of the gold or that the gold has become their god? And I would say, yes, it's both. Now, check this out. They are at Sinai at the birthplace of who they are as a nation. This is where their identity is set. Now, there's this holiday that the Jews celebrate every year where they remember the giving of the Ten Commandments. They remember the story. And on that holiday, they call it Shavuot. It's a festival of weeks. We call it Pentecost. And if you'll remember, on the same day, we get the birthplace of who we are as a people too, Christians. Check this out. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The Holy Spirit forget that number? Or is this statement actually something else? Are you with me? Now look at what happens. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave it to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. By the way, did they make gods out of gold? Or did they use gold to make God look good? See where this is going? They're redeeming the story. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and underline this, enjoying the favor of all the people. So where one way made them look like a laughing stock, the other way helped them enjoy the favor of all people, even non-believers. The non-believers actually liked them. It was weird. It's crazy. Now, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why don't we count those? Why don't we know what that number is? Because that number doesn't matter. God is redeeming the story. Are you with me? Say yes and we'll move on. All right, good, good, good. Welcome to church this morning. Glad you're with me. Uh, I'm losing you. Now, I want to give you another one, another way to see this that I think is, this one is, it's another example of God redeeming a story that I think is particularly unique because this one's pretty jacked up. Now, you remember the, if you read Genesis, the story of Abraham, and then he has Isaac and Ishmael, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, so he broke the mold of two boys, two boys, two boys, and then he just had like 12, and, and some daughters that we know of. And so uh, Jacob's prolific. Um, he, he has these boys that are from his wife, Leah, whom he doesn't love as much, which raises all kinds of questions about that. But then he finally has a son with Rachel, who he loves. And his son with Rachel is named Joseph. Now, when Joseph is 17, the, and the whole story at this point 
shifts. It's about Joseph. It's about Joseph and Joseph this, Joseph that, blah, 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 Joseph this, Joseph that. And, and that's exactly how the older boys feel. They're like, wow, Joseph must be a really big deal. I mean, if you remember, we enter into the Joseph story, and in the Joseph story, we have, um, he has a dream, and he goes to his brothers, and he says, hey guys, I had a dream, and in the dream, you guys bowed down in front of me. Now, if you're an older brother, think about this. You, don't, you already don't like him because dad gave him the coat of many colors, which means he's trying to set him aside as the behor. He's trying to set him aside as the firstborn. So we already don't like him. Like, who the heck does he think he is? What makes him so special? And then he goes, hey, and then, and then um, I had this dream where you guys bowed down in front of me. <laughs> Have you guys seen the movie The Avengers? You know when the Hulk punches Thor? <laughs> like that, right? That's exactly what older brothers do to younger brothers when they say stupid stuff like that. They don't like them at all. <laughs> they don't like them. And, and that's what's going on here. They don't like him. And, and, but the story's all about him. So then one day, all the older boys are out herding the sheep, and he's back with his dad, which <laughs> is probably a safety issue. Uh, dad's trying to protect him. He's trying to baby him a little bit, maybe. I don't know. You, you read into the story what you want there. But then he says, Dad, I'm going to take the guy's food. So he takes his brother's food. They're like, hey, he's here. Let's kill him. That's a great idea. And then they say, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery and tell Dad that he's dead. So they put him in a pit, and then they... Uh, they sell him to these slave traders that are on their way down to Egypt. They take his coat, they tear it and put goat's blood on it. And Judah takes it back to his dad and says, do you recognize this? You with me? Now, what should be the next part of the story? It should be, the next piece of the story should be and Joseph went to Egypt. And while in Egypt, yada, blah, 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 happened, right? Which is exactly what happens except for this weird story sandwiched right in the middle that doesn't fit anything about Judah and this gal named Tamar. No moral giants in this story. And yet, both in the lineage of Jesus. That ought to set you to thinking. Judah has three boys that we know of, and Tamar marries his oldest son, and his oldest son dies. Now, what happens is, in this, in this world, when the, when the husband dies and the wife is left widowed, she becomes the wife of the next son in line, and he is supposed to have children with her for the purpose of carrying on her brother's line. So the next son in line marries her. He's apparently not happy about it for whatever reason. And so God kills him too. And I won't tell you why. And you go read it. It's in the Bible. Uh, but this is a PG experience. So Judah says, well, my third son is too young to marry her. So he sends her home. Now, one day, Judah is out herding the sheep. And he decides... He needs to release the tension. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <sighs> Did it just get hot in here? <sighs> it's in the Bible. Don't email me. It's in the Bible. You read it for yourself. 
So he's far away from home, so he goes to visit a prostitute. Now, Tamar hears that he's coming, and she dresses up like a prostitute. And she goes out to meet him. And he's like, well, I don't have any money, but I'll give you my staff and my belt as collateral, and then I'll bring you a goat for payment. <laughs> for payment, like Because that's how you do things back in the day. Like, here's a goat. Wow. I'll give you anything for a goat. Uh, so that's how they get things done. And, and so they have relations. Judah goes back. He forgets his staff and his belt. He leaves them there as collateral. And then he never really brings the goat because I think, here's, this, is just, this is just Aaron Couch editorial comment here. His, people, his guys are like, where's your staff and your belt? He's like, I don't know. I must have lost it. I, whew, I, and he just tries to pretend like nothing's going on. Well, some time goes by and she's pregnant. And he says, burner. Now remember, because she's been married to his sons, he's the patriarch. Like he has the right to have her killed legally. She's bringing dishonor on the family. So she, they go and get her, bring her out to him. And he says, who are you pregnant by? And she goes, I don't know what his name was, but he gave me the staff and the belt. <laughs> She goes, do you recognize these? <laughs> See where it happened there? Now we know why the story's there, because if Judah's going to be the lineage of Jesus, he's got to be redeemed. He says to his dad, do you recognize this? She says to him, do you recognize this? And Judah gets it. Judah gets exactly what's going on. He goes, Okay. And he actually brings her in and takes her as his own wife. Which raises a whole other set of questions. But what we see is Judah being redeemed. Here's why this matters. That is a jacked up story. And so's yours. And there is no story so messed up that God doesn't want to redeem it. Are you with me? There is no thing that you've done, no place that you've gone, no act that you've made, no tragedy that you've experienced that God doesn't want to redeem. Not just make it okay for you to survive it, but give it value. Not because it was awesome that it happened, but because he can take it and use it for his glory. This is the story that we must tell the world. And I wonder if you ask the average person on the average street in the average town in America, if that's how they would define this church. As a place of powerful redemption stories. Or would they define it as something else? I, I want to read a quote from an Austrian philosopher because I know you guys all spend copious amounts of time reading Austrian philosophy. But I want you to see this. Neither revolution nor revelation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new and powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths that bec and becomes the preferred story. Maybe a myth like God's mad at you or you're an abomination 
one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into the future so that one can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. And I think that it's time for the church to step into the world, not with how bad of a sinner you are. I don't think you have to tell people that. I think they already know that. If I told you, did you know you're a sinner? You'd be like, yeah, I, I knew that. In fact, I'll tell you a whole bunch of ways that you didn't even know I was a sinner. That's not, now, is sin part of the conversation? Yeah, but that's not, the, that's, not the, that's not the story. I mean, the story is that God will go to no restrictions to show you that he's willing to redeem your story. He's willing to make it worth something because he can take it and do something incredible with it. And this testimony of these changed lives that come because God is willing to transform us, to give our story value, that's what the world needs to hear. I don't know if you know this, but we're in the changed lives business. And if the church isn't the place where people can find transformation, then what in the world are we doing? I get a little bit fired up about this, and we're out of time. We're going to take communion together, and so uh, those of you that are passing out communion, I want you to go back and get that and start passing it out. If you're new with us today, we have an open table, and what that means is anyone who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, we would invite you to partake. Please hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. But while they're passing that out, I want to work through a few implications Okay, here's the first implication. No matter how far you've gone, God wants to redeem your story. Do you believe that? No matter how far you've gone, hear me. God wants to redeem your story. He wants to give it value. That leads me to my second implication. There's no story that's not worth redeeming. You've not gone so far that the love of God can't give you your story value. And please hear me say this. Please hear me say this. None of us, and some of us, you know, here's the thing. I've been in ministry a long time. I've been doing this my entire adult life, like 800 years. When I started in ministry, I had hair and it was brown. Um, What I'm learning is just when I think that, um, like I've heard everything, it it just, it always surprises me. Like there's more, there's more like, oh, I've never, I've never heard of anybody doing that. Like, or, you know what, here's what I can tell you. Over the years, I've had this amazing opportunity to hear some incredible stories of people. And I promise you, there is no story so messed up that God can't redeem it. There is no life so in trouble that God can't give it value. And rather than trying to spend all of our energy convincing the world that they're messed up, we ought to try to give them some level of hope that God takes ashes and makes it beautiful. 
That's what the Bible says. Maybe the story that we ought to be presenting the world isn't you're a sinner and you ought to feel bad for it. Maybe the story is you're a sinner and God can redeem it. So you don't have to live in your messed upness. You don't have to be defined by your worst day. You don't have to be defined by your mistakes. You're defined by what God says you are. Which leads me to my third implication. The church must be defined by the same passions God has. Would the world say about the church that we are as passionate about redemption as God is? Or would he, would we be defined in other ways? They think they're so smart. They think they're so right. They think they got it all together. They're so judgmental. By the way, the only way for us to be labeled as judgmental is when we're unwilling to hear people's stories and unwilling to join them in their messes and unwilling to share our own story. How in the world, if, if we're like, yeah, me too, I've been there too, Let's walk through this together. How in the world is that judgmental on any level? Oh, and by the way, the, word, the Bible has a term for that. It's called discipleship. Maybe we should get in that. Last implication. We are in the business of changed lives. The testimony of God moving among his people is a story worth telling again and again. Now, I'll tell you a story. When I was in Bible college... We were taught to believe that we were really important. Not intentionally. This was a default of the perspective. One of the things that I always want to measure on a belief system is what is the fruit of believing that? What's the fruit of believing that? And I think when we were in Bible college, we were told this. It is the preaching of the word of God that has held the church together throughout the centuries. And so you, preachers, you, with your sacred trust, you matter. You hold life and death in your hands. You, you slay the dragons. You, you know, you cure cancer. You, with your words, like, we're like, yes, we really matter. And so when I, got, when I got into ministry, I actually believed that. And so I started preaching, and I was like, I don't need you. It's just me and the truth of the word of God. And I promptly grew the church to, from 15 to 8. Because <laughs> it was weird. People didn't want to hear that story. I was like, creepy, what the? Some, listen, here's what I believe with all of my heart, with every fiber of my being, I believe this. It has not been the preaching of the word of God that has held the church together throughout the centuries. It's the preaching of the word of God poorly that's actually fractured the church over the centuries. The thing that's held the church together throughout the centuries is the testimony of God moving amongst his people. That is what the Old Testament is. It's not so much a, the Israelites are a problem and what are we going to do? It's a story of a God who relentlessly pursues people because he believes in who they are and what, in the sense of what he made them to be. That is a message that the world has to hear. And that's a message that maybe you and I could grow from. It's a message that ties very well into communion. 
Communion for us gives us a picture that says there is no road that God won't cross to tell you how much you matter to him. Do you hear me? There is no place he won't come to to tell you that your story is not beyond repair. It's not beyond repair. God redeems every story if you let him. And for me, that's good because I have a couple tales to tell that I'm not proud of. Maybe you do too. This reminds us that Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. So let's remember him. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. Shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, challenge us with a better message. Lord, thank you for your relentless grace. Thank you that you redeem every story. Thank you that you're not afraid of the most messed up parts of us. God, give us the courage to define ourselves by a better reality. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from Real Life. If you have any questions or feedback about this message, you can always shoot us an email at comment at liferotp.com. Without Walls will continue next week as Richie Shaw from Real Life Ministries Spokane joins us. Until then, be blessed and have a great week.